HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sing upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today I'm speaking with David Sanchez-Carpio from the Food and Water Watch in España. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we were having a fascinating conversation, which really I should have recorded for everybody. When we, <laughs> as soon as you came in, we were like, you know, go off to the races. But um, tell me a few things. Let's let's talk. Start with what? How has the pork industry changed in Spain in the last two decades? You've been doing this work for about 10, 15 years, right? Yeah. So what if what are the major changes that you've seen? And you were just telling me now off off the tape that um, that the way Spain has ramped up has has really been problematical. So so give me a thumbnail of how it's changed. Okay. Well, first, a uh, pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah. In Spain, uh, we have a. Uh, we have a traditional way of doing uh, uh, pig farming, no? In, uh, in mainly in the west of Spain, our pigs are uh, living in forest, uh, like uh, outdoors, and they are being fed out of uh, nuts, no? And uh, that they would find naturally in the forest. Right, acorns, hickory Acorn, nuts. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the Iberian Iberian ham, no? That is uh, quite a a symbol, no, of Spanish food tradition. Most definitely. What we have found is that big industry has uh, is has been using Spain to run a factory farming model uh, to produce pork meat, cheap one, not this not uh, this uh, same breed uh, of a uh, pig that I uh, um, was a traditional one, uh, focusing on exports uh, around Europe. Uh, 
factory farming started in Northern Europe, but now in countries like De Denmark, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, mm -hmm. they are really implementing now environmental legislation like about nitrogen pollution and other kinds of uh, uh, problems associated with factory farming. So industry is focusing to Spain, into Spain and um, other Eastern European countries, like places where they can still pollute and, uh, and uh, reduce the, the price of the meat they're trying to export, mainly to China, for example, now. So China is your biggest customer? Now, I think the, the big push that we, uh, we we've seen in the last five, six years is mainly export for, uh, to China. No, uh, Chinese market is growing, no, it's expanding with consumption, and they are looking for the cheapest place to produce their, their meat. And uh, now it seems to be Spain. Have they done what they did in the United States, which was they bought an enormous company called Smithfield, I'm sure you're aware of that, um, which included 400 farms, um, 26 or 28 processing plants, and then all these other sort of added value uh, chains that went along with that. And it was uh, it was one of the largest industrial purchases. I think they bought it for about $4.5 billion, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so they took over that whole sector of the pork industry. Have they been buying up? Uh, pork farms uh, in Spain, or they just contract with? No, not so far. I mean, we mm -hmm. we had a Smithfield here for a for a you long time. You had Smithfield here, yeah, because they bought a, one of the biggest pork meat uh, industries, Campo Frio. Ah. But now uh, they belong to a Mexican group, the Alpha Group. Uh, so Carlos Slim and all these uh, billionaires, no? <laughs> uh, but uh, so far, the Spanish meat industry is still uh, mainly family owned. So they are like uh, families uh, from Catalonia or in the south, Murcia or Galicia, that are running the business that is really, it's a really efficient industry because it's mm -hmm. vertically integrated. Uh, since the 60s, they have been doing this mm -hmm. uh, with these uh, farmer cooperatives at the beginning. Then it was the feed industry. Then it was supermarkets, no? like the main supermarkets, they, they are also really vertically integrated to produce the, the I was meat. very curious about that because that doesn't exist in the States. The supermarkets are a whole different, you know, collect, buying collective, I think. And But here you're saying that the Spanish supermarket chains actually own their own farms or own yeah, their own yeah. companies that produce yeah. pork for their chain. Well, what's the average size of a supermarket chain here? Oh, you mean uh, as an industry? Uh, well, like say, uh, like uh, I know Carrefour is a French company, but yeah. say, but you do have it here. So yeah, in Spain, how many of them are there? Yeah, I mean, I guess Carrefour is one of the biggest in Spain as well. Yeah. Then we have a Spanish one that is called Mercadona. Right. And Mercadona is one of these, uh, it's a, a bit of a unique model of supermarket because uh, they try to promote um, like good uh, salary conditions for workers. They try to buy Spanish products. And what they do is that they associate themselves with uh, companies producing their food. And one of their companies is called Incarlopsa. And is the one that is promoting factory farming in uh, the southeast of Spain. And is uh, signing also agreements to South China. So oh. it's not directly the supermarket, but it's this company associated with the supermarket. So Incarlopsa is a, is a great example because what they did was to to build a huge uh, slaughterhouse, uh, not far from Madrid, of course. All this is to, to feed uh, big cities, no? yep. centers of consumption, in Tarancón. Is the, the name of the place, and because they can kill, I don't know how many thousands of pigs uh, no, uh, um, in the same day, yeah. uh, they are are looking to, uh, for areas all around 
to build factory farms. So a region that is called uh, Castilla-La Mancha, it's the place of uh, Don Quixote, no? sí. it's like a, a quite mythical area of Spain, is revolting against this because they want to build farms everywhere. No, and suddenly, uh, quiet villages, most of them, they were trying to look for another alternative for development, like uh, tourism or, uh, yeah, I mean, promoting that, uh, the values of living in the in the countryside, no, like nature, contact sure. with nature, suddenly... Or even traditional products that yeah, are produced as, in the area, right? Yeah, as well. So now they are facing a huge wave of... Uh, factory farm projects that are coming to every village, no? And uh, when they are rejected in one village, they go to the village next to it. So it's a, it's an ongoing process. The good side of it, and I guess we're going to talk about this, is how people are mobilizing against this and how they are managing to stop a lot of projects, uh, how they are coordinating at the local scale, but also at the regional scale, mm -hmm. uh, to resist this industry. So the, the capital of this region, that is Toledo, because this industry is heavily promoted by the regional authorities, Uh, they go there every, I mean, every month. There is a big demonstration of all the people from these rural areas uh, to go to Toledo and bring their problems there. No, so it's a, it's a great example of organizing that they are that they are doing, and they are getting uh, quite good results. No, resisting uh, some of the worst projects. No, that are, have been planned. right. In other words, meaning some of the largest projects, the yeah. biggest CAFOs or the biggest slaughterhouses. Um, you just you mentioned before we started the tape. You you talked about um, a story about going to visit with a bunch of other NGOs. You went to visit a small town in an area that's experiencing a lot of pressure mm -hmm. from industrialized farming. And um, I wanted you to recapitulate that story mm -hmm. because I thought it was it just perfectly um, encapsulated the issues that make it so hard to uh, to you know, deny an industry entrance into a, a, a town that is otherwise uh, very low on resources. So can you just describe your experience with that mayor? Yeah, yeah sure. So the, we went to, to visit a, one small village uh, in uh, northeast Spain, in the province of Soria. It's called Noviercas. Noviercas uh, is a village of 150 people living there. Uh, it's, it's really small um, in a quite um, non-populated area, no? Um, And uh, there's a farmers' cooperative actually that want to build there a factory farm, a dairy factory farm with more than 20,000 cows. Wow! And that will be the biggest factory farm, uh, dairy factory farm in Europe. Yeah. So it's uh, it will be the first step to import to Europe this uh, model coming from the U.S. No, of a huge dairy factory farms that we see in California in other areas. No. Oh sure. Yeah. Um. So, well, we asked for a meeting with the mayor and uh, together with uh, some other colleagues no, uh, from Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, also from farmer unions, um, we went to, uh, to meet the mayor. And, uh, I mean, when you talk with him, I mean, you can really understand his position at some point, no? Uh, they see this uh, opportunity as the last chance to develop the, the area and the village. No, it's... Um, I mean, they are losing population for the last 40 years, yeah. and these villages uh, might disappear. No, if there is uh, no no alternative, no, to create jobs or to fix the population. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, it's uh, we thought it was really important to discuss with him about uh, what can be the consequences, no, on the on the rural areas. Uh, learning from the experience from the U.S., for example, no, that uh, it's not going to create wealth in the year, in the area. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to create huge environmental problems, and at the end, it's, uh, 
uh, I mean, the village is not going to, to, to find its uh, miracle solution. It's also um, difficult to challenge this idea of somebody from outside needs to come here to develop this village. No, well, I mean, they have a lot of capacity and they have a lot of resources uh, to create another model of, um, of uh, jobs or development. No, I mean, this, this area of Soria is known because it's, uh, the nature is amazing. Really? And, and they uh, produce a lot of organic products or natural products. And uh, although it has been really abandoned by uh, public authorities, and they really need a, a, a development plan for the area, uh, I mean, you can understand that uh, you as a mayor of a village that might disappear in 20 years, if nothing happens, yeah. uh, might welcome with open arms a developer that is offering to invest uh, 100 million euros in your area. No? Yeah. And, and when you read about the um, uh, potential impacts, you, you might look to the other side. No, Because, I mean, and this is really human. And if you, I mean, you go there and you imagine how uh, hard it is to live there, and I mean, you can really uh, feel empathy, no, for uh, for this kind of thinking. But uh, well, I mean, we didn't manage to convince him uh, <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet, yet. But at least I think it was really interesting to have um, an honest, honest uh, interchange on uh, why we are trying to oppose this. Uh, us, it's not us. It's not just big NGOs. No, it's also uh, people living in the area that sure. are trying to do to do another kind of farming. And opposing a project, a project like this in such a tiny village, uh, I mean, from a social point of view, is super complicated, no? Yeah. Because uh, I mean, it's uh, creating uh, enemies uh, <laughs> all around because half of the village is going to sell their land to the to the company, uh, a land that was, uh, I mean, was worthless uh, from the market point of view. Right. Uh, that is going to pay a fortune for this. Uh, also to a lot of people that is no longer living in the village, no, that is living in the capital or whatever. So opposing this project, because you're a farmer there and you don't want to uh, have a, this mega factory farm next to you, it's, uh, it's super difficult. But um, so what we, I mean, we're trying also to support no, these uh, efforts of uh, building local resistance there, although it's a, it's a really difficult context no, to to promote, to advocate for another ways of development. No? Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop right now. We'll be right back with David Sanchez Carpio from the Food and Food Water Watch in España. This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. I want to talk more about, um, you know, what you were what you were just finishing up with a second ago uh, about sort of how you are helping communities build resistance, um, because it is a very complicated um, issue. Uh, that does require both a lot of tact and also a lot of real world thinking in terms of how 
if you're not going to accept the miracle short term, but still miracle bullet of cash infusion from a big industrial player, then what are the alternatives for a community like that? So how, how do you guys help to support the, the activists who are engaged in trying to keep this at arm's length? I mean, what we have been trying uh, from Food and Water Watch here in Europe is to, uh, yeah, to try to work with local communities, um, building capacity and uh, uh, trying to make the links be between different communities resisting these projects. Uh, we were feeling that um, this was uh, starting to be an emerging problem, but in really isolated areas. And uh, for people, it was just about local problems. So there was a, an amazing community in the north next to the border with France that were mobilizing a lot against this uh, industry, but they were not connecting so much with people in other regions that were fighting the same industry. No, So well, we published a report to give an overview. So this was not just about uh, a problem in your village. This is happening everywhere. So these people are fighting the same industry from different places. Um, also, to we try to break this... Uh, uh, feeling of isolation that sometimes you have in rural areas. Know that uh, uh, you are just uh, by yourself in your small region fighting this. No, I mean, you have many other people uh, with uh, whom you can build uh, uh, connections uh, that can give you ideas, that can, uh, I mean, that you can build on their successes and then their failures. No, uh, so break this idea and build a movement. Uh, and also, yeah, trying, trying to build a bit of capacity. Uh, by learning from each other, no? Like uh, these, those people in that uh, community, it's called Loporzano. It's like the, <laughs> um, I mean, they're one of the most active communities. They're super good with uh, communications and social media so that they can uh, uh, organize a workshop for other communities on how, how they can communicate, which kind of messaging is more, has been more useful for them, working mm -hmm. with media. Like in the sense of we, it's clear that we are not attacking farmers or farming. Our our enemy is the industry, not the people that are desperate enough to accept these kind of deals. No, so building a movement and a common framework on how we're not just resisting a local a specific project. It's uh, going beyond a bit this uh, not in my backyard movement. No, uh, because we are fighting a whole model of the meat industry. That if it's maybe you can uh, defeat and. Uh, this uh, factory farm in your village, but the industry is going to move to the village uh, next to you. Sure. And, and the impacts are going still to be the same. So uh, trying to build solidarity. Uh, we started uh, organizing uh, national, national gatherings, uh, national meetings of uh, impacted communities by factory farming. Uh, the first one in this uh, oh. village in Loporzano and the second one in, uh, in Cuenca, that is this uh, La Mancha, no, this, yep. re this region that we were mentioning about uh, in Carlops and this right. uh, and this industry, and uh, I think it has been really successful uh, to encourage encourage people, learn from each other, build capacity, and now we have a. I think it's one of the most dynamic movements in Spain now. It's a movement coming from rural areas, that as we were, we were talking before. Uh, we tend to think that it's conservative areas that people doesn't mobilize because right. uh, it's quite a normal old population living there. But uh, I mean, in villages of 200 people, uh, they have been mobilizing a lot. They, they have been organizing demonstrations. They have been organizing campaigns. Uh, people are recording like uh, videos for YouTube in which they are singing and doing uh, flash mobs in the villages, uh, going to the capital to bring these problems from rural areas 
into where decision uh, political decisions are taken uh, i mean it's it's proving that uh I mean, people can get really organized, right. uh, self-organized. That grassroots and, works, and that uh, I mean, and they are being really successful at blocking uh, like some of the most uh, damaging projects. No? Mm -hmm. um, well, that that brings me to a question that I wanted, uh, that I was very curious about, which is how much how much does your government, uh, your national government, support the rise of factory farming? in your country like how much do they subsidize it um do they give them special permissions is there a lot of lobbying going on from industrial mm -hmm. players to sway uh legislators to find in their favor when it comes to any kind of regulations like how much do you you know how, what are you fighting against are you fighting against just the industrial guys or are you fighting also against your own government mm. i I think we're fighting a monster because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, meat industry is the fourth uh, most important industry in Spain. Yeah. And we started fighting the, the growth of this industry uh, in times of uh, economic crisis. So it's attacking one of the few industries that is delivering from the economic point of view and that is... Uh, is working to for the trade balance and so it's it's really difficult the lobby the meat lobby is super powerful in spain yes. because i mean they're a huge industry um the, this industry has a lot of subsidies that are difficult to trace because um we, in, here in europe we have the common agricultural policy that is similar to the farm bill yeah uh but here we don't have a definition for factor for a factory farm this CAFO, no, this uh, yeah. concentrated animal feeding operations that you yeah. have a definition in the, the U.S., we don't have anything similar in Europe. Really? Uh, we're trying to introduce it in the, in the next reform of, the, of this common agricultural policy. But uh, it's difficult to trace which subsidies go to which kind of farm. Mm. Also, we have been, I mean, like in the U.S., for many years, we, have, we had like a... Agricultural policy that was focusing on trade, no, on international trade, in right. which all the subsidies are linked to scaling up the farms. I mean, if you want to become a livestock farmer, uh, you are not going to get subsidies if you only have 20 cows. No, I mean the minimum amount. I don't know exactly, the, but it can be 200. No, so it's like a, they are promoting a competitive, no, in a, in their in their sense, no, a, yes. a model of a livestock farming. So for many years they have been promoting this model, you know, through subsidies, uh, through really bad policies, and also because of all these free trade agreements that they are signing. No, mm. because for example the European Union is negotiating one uh, free trade agreement for many time uh, with uh, Mercosur. So Argentina, Brazil, some countries that are, are the most um, like the, the ones that are producing more meat, no, and exporting more meat. So for a long time. Uh, what European uh, politicians wanted is that uh, European farmers got, got competitive with Mercosur. No, when we know this is never going to happen. No, I mean the no. the model, <laughs> I mean the f f farming. You're never going to be JBS. <laughs> no, and uh, <laughs> absolutely, but uh, but also because in Europe we have a big conscience of which is our model of farming, no, and the model of farming that we want. Uh, we have a clear idea of uh, we are proud of uh, our landscape and our heritage. No, I mean. Mm. It depends on the country, no? Europe is super diverse. But, uh, I mean, we have a lot of history, no? And uh, they're in, coming from rural areas. So uh, we are really proud of our products, no? Like uh, yeah. this Spanish ham or chorizo or all the cheese in France, no? So right. there, there is some connection, some cultural connection with uh, 
our family farming model and it doesn't work this kind of huge factory farms only in desperate areas no where they don't see any other way of development no and they and industry is making use of it no it's a, it's taking advantage of yeah. people that are, are a bit desperate looking for alternatives no economic alternatives for their villages wow so yeah uh, we are fighting uh, big industry and also a lot of uh, governmental support especially from regions um, for factory farming it's mainly uh, regional legislation that because they are dealing with environment and what we see is that uh, in many regions they are just uh, making things as easy as, uh, as easy as possible for the for industry because it's uh, employment in rural areas no right. and this is like a mantra that uh, although we know that uh, uh, you're not creating real, like, uh, good quality employment or even employment uh, with these factory farms. Uh, politicians are going to use this mantra uh, to justify their support for industry. Mm -hmm. Even so, if it's just that they pay that much more taxes, that increases the tax base. I know that's a big argument in the United States, that mm, these industries, you know, contribute mm, to the tax base and that helps pay for, you know, whatever schools and roads and da-da-da-da-da mm, in rural areas. Mm, it's, it's not an argument that we, no? we hear in Spain, no. Huh, no maybe it's, I'm it's, wrong. It's, well, I mean, it, it depends on the on the area you're using yeah. an argument. But it's mainly employment. It's, it's about fixing population. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a really, a real problem of uh, how we balance population in Spain, no, with most of the people living in Madrid, that is just in the center of the country, and then like a huge empty donut, no? and then people living in the coast. Oh, yeah. So sure. this is starting to be a, a political debate and because it, it's, re it's a real problem. No, then we have uh, uh, fires in forests because nobody's uh, taking care of them. Um, I mean, we all come from uh, rural areas somehow, no? our parents or grandparents. And when you go there, uh, I mean, it, they are completely, most of them are abandoned by administration, no? So uh, this is or, or in the public debate. Uh, so their main argument is about fixing population and employment. Yeah. But on the other hand, we know that, uh, I mean, you create one employment for every four or 5,000 peaks. So it's... Pretty much. Uh, and all the problems that you're creating and all the other alternatives that you're killing because uh, you are uh, promoting this model. But we have interesting... Conflicts, uh, very interesting. In um, there is an area next to Madrid uh, called Segovia, that is an area where they are promoting a lot um, tourism in rural areas, yeah. and and they have been forced to pass a legislation in which uh, factory farms cannot spread manure in weekends, during weekends and uh, bank holidays, uh, so it doesn't uh, no interfere with uh, tourism. Sure. But still, that means that if you li if you're living there, you get <laughs> no. five days a week, yeah, five, five days a week, big yeah. Shit. yeah. So your, your life is horrible. But mm. uh, we want to protect tourism, and when people from Madrid are going there for the weekends, they cannot smell like uh, manure, no. Uh, so it's, uh, it, 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 I mean, it's creating a lot of conflicts in rural areas as well between different models of how you want to develop uh, economy and create jobs in the rural in rural areas. Yeah, we have so our problems are so similar in the states. I guess they are everywhere, but it's the same thing. We have, you know, tremendous flight to urban areas, a lot of loss of a lot of loss of farming uh, of people who want to farm anymore. Let me uh, what's your average age of farmer here just out of curiosity? Ours in the states it's somewhere between 54 and 58 years old. It should be 58, 60 something Yeah. Like that. So yeah. not a lot of people in Spain are going back into farming no no because well i mean for many reasons but uh yeah uh they're not 
making it easy to have a, to become a farmer the way you want to be a farmer. It's difficult to have access to land. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a whole process. And also, I mean, it's this image of uh, if you're living in rural areas, that your parents, are most of them are going to try that you study at university and never come back. No, it's yeah. just, I mean, we, we are still in this process of... Uh, People feel that they need to leave rural areas because there is no future there. Yeah. While, well, that is true for some regions, not this mentality, but uh, in some other regions, I mean, there's a thriving economy going there based on the organic farmer, local markets, or uh, tourism. No, but uh, uh, we we still have this dilemma, no? And um, yeah, so we have a problem with uh, renewing, uh, no, uh, the farmers in, yeah. in Spain and all around Europe. It, certainly, all around the United States, and and as in, and that's one argument why industrial farmers or industrial farming companies use that to say, well, we you know we produce so much food with so little labor, you know, mm. there's really no way to push back against that. I mean, people mm. don't want to farm anymore. Well, people don't want to farm. I think a because it's really hard work, and we're not used to that anymore. Um, but also because it is so hard to compete against. The prices, and I, I wanted that just brings me to sort of the, the end. I think what should be the end of the interview, but um, in the United States, factory industrialized meat production has essentially crushed the people who are producing it, either through the contract farming uh, model that we use for pigs and chickens. Um, which I'm going to give you a copy of my book, and you'll learn all about that. Thank you. <laughs> um, and the uh, or the um, cattle production, where the processor is the one who determines the price of the of the product at the end. And so, uh, because they are able to work on such a big scale, they can squeeze those farmers mm-hmm. and make them, you know, accept lower and lower prices in order to stay in the game. Because if you're raising twenty thousand birds or fifty thousand pigs, you don't have an option about where to go. When it comes time to bring those animals to slaughter, you cannot possibly process and distribute 20,000 or 50,000 carcasses. So they really do have you over a barrel as a farmer. And I wanted to ask you if that sort of was a problem here as well, where where the few people who remain, uh, you know, farming pigs in a sort of normal way, like, say, with 100 pigs or 250 pigs, um, do they find that their prices are being squeezed by these big companies? Like, how does that work for you guys? Yeah, I think it's the, it has been the same situation really? for, the, for the last decades in which all the like small farms are disappearing because they cannot, yeah, exactly, they cannot compete for prices. Uh, with this model of distribution in which supermarkets are now the main source of, um, right. of, uh, um, of uh, where you are going to buy food in cities. Right. Um, I mean, with 200 uh, pigs, you have no leverage, no, to, uh, no way to negotiate with Mercadona, Carrefour, or these kind of uh, mm-hmm. producers. And also we here we had, um, and there you can feel the meat industry lobby, because legislation was uh, made uh, to, yeah, uh, for for the big meat industry, so there was no legislation regulating um, uh, direct selling from farm to consumer or other ways of artisanal ways of processing. So in a moment in which, um, for someone uh, like a small slaughterhouse in a rural area, they they have the same legislation that uh, this huge uh, slaughterhouse from uh, in Carloxa that we were talking before. Uh, so if you have the same requirements, I mean you cannot compete uh, in a fair way, no. So right. uh, this is changing a lot, and some regions are, re- are trying to re- uh, regulate um, 
farmers markets and uh, adapting health and sanitary rules to be more realistic with uh, family farming no? and mm -hmm. what a small scale farming means. Uh, so on one hand, you had the pressure at the market pressure. And on the other hand, you have a legislation that was designed for big industry. Right. And so you guys are changing that because that because the laws are being rewritten to give more leeway to smaller farmers. You feel like that's something that's happening. And is that something that the NGOs are working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that is happening. It's because well, there's a European framework that you can adapt. And now some regions in Spain are adapting this regulation to make some space for small producers to, to survive mm -hmm. and to make their living. No, mm -hmm. um, uh, So, yeah, and this is something that a lot of movements are working. In Spain, there is a big uh, food sovereignty movement, uh -huh. uh, like a lot of... Um, yeah, community-supported agriculture, no? Yeah, sure, US, we no? have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of groups that are working with farmer unions, uh, looking for other ways of... Uh, uh, I mean, for the people that want to do other models of farming that can be can uh, start becoming a farmers and that they can market their products in the way they, they want and not, not in the way subsidies and industry are trying to promote them to... Uh, to market their products. And this is difficult for them, but um, I think that um, for most small-scale farmers and uh, for consumers, it's obvious that we need to work together to create another food system. No, And yeah. this movement is, I mean, it's, it's growing in Spain. Um, in a country that we come from, I mean, we have been a developed country not for so long, so changing the this food mentality, no, it's a bit difficult. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's creating a lot of links and a lot of connection between farmers and urban consumers uh, in the way to promote this kind of uh, other market alternatives. Mm. So this is, uh, I mean, that brings a lot of hope, no, on uh, how we can... Uh, try to change the food system in, in Spain. And yet your food is so much better here already than it is. <laughs> I mean, I just can't get over like the markets, but I also, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here, but the, when I, I have two local markets here, I mm -hmm. have Mercado um, uh, de Cebada mm -hmm. and I have Mercado San Fernando. Yeah. And these are two huge buildings Mm. Um, that obviously were once packed to the rafters with vendors mm. and which are now by and large empty, like tragically empty. I mm. mean, really quite sad to me to see. Mm. Um, and so I and I see that there is a supermercado or a mini super on every block, practically in this mm. neighborhood anyway. Um, and so I see the damage that the supermarket industry is doing to those traditional markets. But are those guys in the traditional type of marketplace like the Mercado de Cebada, is that, are those more farm to table type uh, vendors or they're buying from the same big, uh, you know, giant like our Hunts Point market in New York City, for example, where all of the big distributors come in with their stuff. Yes, you're nodding. Yeah. Yes, it's the same. Yeah, it's, it's a bit the same model. I mean... For us, uh, the markets uh, in the Mediterranean area are a super important place where you meet people. No, yeah, like a they're very place. social. Yeah. Yes, and there's places will, to drink and hang out with your friends yeah, and, and kids. And, and also because it's like a personal contact in which the guy is selling you the fruit. You know him. He yeah. knows the way how you like bananas. And uh, no, so you have this, uh, yes. this direct interaction that you will never have in a supermarket. Right. Uh, so at, but at some point we were... Um, well, uh, Spain was developing. We were all super impressed uh, by supermarkets, no? And uh, those places started to be a bit abandoned. I think that now, I mean, they are like uh, reviving a lot. 
also because we have a, a strong culture of buying fresh products like yeah, fruit, every day. fish and, yeah. and we there's a common understanding that that you won't find it in the supermarkets no in the in, in the proper way uh, but still most of these uh, people selling this market is not uh, direct selling it's uh, it comes from this central processor right. no it here right. is called Merca Madrid that is, that has uh, carries many of the problems that supermarkets uh, are no it's basically the same model but uh, one of the, the of the markets that you mentioned is being um, taken over by other alternatives, no, especially from uh, the neighborhood, no, like uh, people, Cebada, Cebada uh, San, uh, San Fernando, oh, San Fernando, San Fernando, in which also they, they try to mix uh, the way they tried um, the local council of Madrid, that was super neoliberal for 20 years. For them, the way to make the, those spaces a living space was to sell one floor to a supermarket and then leave another one for market, no, because you yes. understand that. People are going to buy fruit in the market and then they're going to go to the supermarket. Um, so there in San Fernando, the idea was to challenge that model. So you have a bookshop, for example, no, that yes. sells uh, books by kilo. No? <laughs> 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 uh, you have some bars that are kind of yes. uh, you like local drinks. Then you have an organic, an organic uh, uh, shop where you can buy yep. organic vegetables, cheese. So it's trying to to look for other alternatives. No community-based alternatives. And yes. uh, I think this is the way to go for uh, these uh, markets because you need to offer... I mean, they offer this uh, direct contact, no? like being in touch with people that for for me it's important, but also like for elderly people. No, it's like feeling treated as a person. That is something that you would never go and get in a supermarket. No? Right. And, but uh, also you need to differentiate your model. No, You cannot sell the same stuff that uh, the people upstairs in the supermarket are selling because... I mean, you're always going to be uh, more expensive than them. Yeah. No, you you cannot compete. So you need to go to other model, no, like a more direct selling or working directly with farmers. And this is starting to happen, no. In, uh, and for us, it's super important to keep these uh, markets because it's the center of the of a neighborhood, no, Absolutely. like a social or social life. And uh, so it's a challenge. I mean, uh, resisting neoliberalism is a challenge, but uh, <laughs> I mean, there are many there are many alternatives uh, popping up. So it's. Uh, it's kind of encouraging. That's great. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and thank you so much for joining me today. David Sanchez Carpio from Food and Water Watch, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks a lot for this. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening. <laughs>